Hey, so I imagine you're listening to this podcast because you're an artist yourself and you want some insider tips, insights, and general advice from artists you respect. One aspect of the business we sometimes discuss on Best Advice is rollout strategies. When you're dropping new music, you want to give it the best chance of getting heard. It's all about reaching the right listeners at the right time. That's why our team at Spotify for Artists built Marquee. Marquee is a marketing tool for turning listeners into bigger fans of your new music. With Marquee, you can send full screen recommendations of your latest album, EP, or single to the right fans as soon as they open the app. Listeners who see your Marquee are twice as likely to save your tracks, making it a better way to develop your audience than trying to drive streams from social media. To find out more, go to artists.spotify.com slash marquee. Welcome to The Payoff. I'm Chris Duffy. And I'm Antonia Cerejido. The Payoff is the audio companion to all the great business and personal finance coverage from Mike, which you can find at mike.com slash the payoff. So the idea for this show is that we are regular people who, maybe like you, wish that we knew more about money and we wish that we were better at it. And in every episode, we're going to try and figure it all out. But we have a secret weapon that you probably don't have, which is an entire team of financial journalists and experts here to help us out. And this isn't just about stocks and bonds and bank accounts. It's going to be about how all of those things affect everything in our lives. And so for this episode, we're talking about how most of us get our money, our jobs. The grind, the hustle, the rat race, your career, your occupation. Look, no matter what you call it, it's what we spend most of our lives doing, and it's where money comes from. And as usual, we're all about making finance actually personal here. So we're going to use examples from our own jobs, lives, and experiences. You've got job questions. We're going to try and find answers, starting off in our first segment that we like to call, Oh Oh No! No! Which is how both of us normally feel when we have to talk about money. Job searches? Oh no! Salary negotiations? Oh no! Career planning? Oh no! (laughs) Look, if there's one thing that we learned in our last episode, it's that you can't be good with making money unless you get good at talking about money. We need to be asking questions and talking about this stuff, even if it is awkward or weird or scary, which it often is. True. In today's Oh No, we're going to figure out how to negotiate a salary. Oh no! (laughs) You've got a new job, we're going to make sure you get paid. Already have a job, we're going to make sure you get paid more. Negotiating makes a lot of people uncomfortable, but it's so important because who doesn't want to earn more money? Then we'll move on to the big interview, where we talk with someone who knows all about what goes on behind the scenes in the job market. Alex Kavalakis, founder of The Muse, which is an online career site with hundreds of job opportunities, career advice from experts, and even coaches who give private career help. And in our final segment, The Bottom Line, we take a look at the freshly released report from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. January's Employment Situation Summary, more commonly called the Jobs Report. We're going to find out why everyone seems to care so much about this report, and one of our great reporters from the payoff is going to join us to break it all down, what it means and how it's actually going to affect you in your day-to-day life. All right, here we go with our segment where we confront and get over our confusion and concern about something in the world of money. You know, the kind of financial stuff that usually makes you go, oh, oh no! Okay, so for this episode, we really wanted to get into the aspect of people's jobs that they talk about the least, how much money they make, and whether they're getting what they deserve. Skipping the haggling step when it comes to your starting salary can end up costing you more than a million dollars over the course of your life, according to job site salary.com. It's obviously really important that you actually ask for money and talk about money when you first get a job, but it's so, so hard to do it. I mean, 
I know from my personal experience, this is probably my least favorite part of working. Is, is the negotiating part? Not even just negotiating, but thinking and talking about actual money. It just feels like you're either being greedy and asking for too much or you're getting screwed over and you're being taken advantage of. Like, it's so rare to feel fulfilled at the end of a conversation about money. Yeah, I think the hardest part for me is the, like, knowing the worth part. Mm. Because I feel like very often you have to have some sort of, like, insider knowledge of, like, what the normal pricing for something is. Yeah. And it's very hard to determine very often what that is. So when I was working as a public school teacher, it used to be uh, that the salary was so set that it was even like published online that anyone could see it. And it was really clear. You knew what you made. You knew what everyone else made. You knew each year you went up in this really clear kind of steps. And it wasn't very much money, but it was straightforward. And in some ways, I loved that. And then when I quit to become a, a comedian, it became like the number one thing that I do every day is Damn. talk about money. Because for me, I have probably four or five or six jobs in a month. And each one requires another conversation about money. So you're like a master negotiator. <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm a master negotiator, but I am a frequent negotiator. <laughs> and I think like some people care more about having a good relationship. Some people care more about getting more money. Like for me, I'm definitely on the side where I'd so much rather enjoy the job and feel like everyone's happy than make a little bit more money. So to me, like a lot of my negotiations end with me being like, I want to be paid fairly, but I also want the person who's paying me to feel like, this is good. I yeah. don't want them to resent it. And the trick that I found, and it works so well, is I never say a number. I always say a range. Mm. But I put the bottom of the range as what I hope I get. So, like, say I think, like, I'm doing this work. I think it should be $500. Mm -hmm. I'll say, like, well, for something like this, I probably should get paid between $500 and $750. And then sometimes they're like, how about 600? And I'm like, oh, amazing. That's great. And other times they're like 500. And I'm like, oh, I tricked you because that was what I thought was fair. <laughs> uh, that makes sense. Yeah. And the thing that I found that works so well about that is that people, because they rarely say the top end, they always feel like you're giving a concession and like you're being easy to work with, which makes it so that I have such a better experience. Because you with just like want everyone to love you all the time. That is uh, you and my therapist have been talking. <laughs> <laughs> Not, I, I don't even have a therapist, but you could be. That. But I, yeah, I need one and I'm hiring you, Antonio. <laughs> for me, the, the like the biggest I think for a lot of millennials, it's it's true that people change jobs at a higher rate. Mm -hmm. And because of that, that is a really great opportunity to go up in salary. Yeah. So I love my other job. I'm a producer for Latino USA. It's honestly an amazing job. Uh, and when I was first hired, they gave me. A, a reasonable starting salary, but they would have never given me the amount that they give me now if I hadn't left them for three months mm. um, and then decided to go back, which obviously I don't re like recommend like just going off to a different job and then coming back. But I do think that those moments at the beginning are really important because like then you can leapfrog to your next thing and it, they'll give you more money. I also think that it's, you know, it's definitely the most powerful position you can be in is when you don't need. Like, if you're actually willing to leave, that's a much more powerful negotiating position than if you're like, I'll I just yeah. want more money, but I have to stay. I mean, I think people tend to know that. Um, and also, I think people feel like it's more fair if you're like, here's the offer I have somewhere else. Exactly. Right? And they're like, we have to match that. That's that's only fair. Yeah. Like, if you ever get another job opportunity, that is a perfect time to negotiate. You seem to worry less about the, like, I want everyone to like me on this job, and I don't want to get people upset by how much money I ask for. Well, you want to know something funny? I was thinking about this. I think that 
a lot of young women, professional young women, grew up in a time where, like, now we have every single deodorant commercial telling us to negotiate our salary. <laughs> yeah, you know? exactly. So I've actually been told my whole life, like, you are a brown woman, so please ask for more. So I've never really dealt with, like, shame in asking for more because I'm like, I'm a brown woman and I've been told that I deserve better. Hmm. So I've never... By secret deodorant. <laughs> exactly. Every deodorant commercial has been telling me this one thing. And I've listened. It's that thing about, like, learning to live with the shame. It's like, you know, the worst they can say is no. Yeah. Although, actually, a question that I have is, like, if you ask for too much, do people ever say, like, you're out of here? I I feel like that is the number one fear that I have and that other people have. And I've never once heard of someone negotiating so hard that they're like, not only will we not give you the raise, but you're fired. I think it's just, like, at a certain point, you lose credibility, right? Like, if you're like, hey— I'm a receptionist, and I think I should be paid $400,000 a year. They're like, you just don't know how money works. Yeah. Like, that's not what your job is going to make. But if you're like, look, I'm a receptionist, and I've talked to other people in the office, and they're all making a lot more than me. I think I should make what they make. Then people respect you and are like, yeah, you're asking for what you're worth. So it's about it's about a respect thing. Yeah, and you know, a big thing that I've always thought is, Sometimes people get so focused on building a career that they forget that they're also building a life. So, like, you could maybe get more money, but maybe what you actually want is more time or Mm -hmm. better hours or Mm -hmm. uh, work that you prefer. And every single time I've made the choice to be like, well, what is it that I would do if I had a billion dollars? It's often like, oh, it doesn't involve making more money, but it's a thing where I'm like, it's the equivalent of having thousands more dollars because now I can, like, have lunch with friends. And I prefer that to having tons more money. I agree. Every time I've ever done anything solely for money, it has been a bad decision. Yeah. So, okay. So that's each of our experiences, but we also both have a job that we share, right? We both got hired to be on this show. So we thought, why shouldn't we just talk to the person who hired us both, our producer, Alan? Um, So Alan, can we ask you some questions? I I suppose. I suppose we can can talk about that. This Uh, really is a weird experience. How often do you get to talk to the person who just hired you about the hiring process. Yeah. We just had this conversation about, like, could you get fired for asking for too much money? Like, yeah, you were on the we? other side of this. Sure. An absolutely preposterous counteroffer could maybe change somebody's mind a little bit. But if the decision has already been made that you're the right fit for what the role is, it's much more likely that no matter what number you throw out there, they're really just going to say, actually, this is what we can do. Mm. Like, all employers have, like, an operating budget and they can only wiggle so much in and around there. So I think it's less about what you were talking about earlier, Antonio. You were talking about shame, right? I think shame needs to go out of this conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really a practical nuts and bolts Maybe conversation. I should be your therapist. That's I what think I'm you learning. should. I, I think, Antonio, and I will, you should negotiate for a high rate and I'll pay you whatever rate you want. Mm, interesting. Here's the thing, though. I, you just said, and I, I feel like this was true and honest. I believe you when you say that there wasn't an amount of money we could have said where you would have been like, no, you would have just been like, not possible. But I actually think that if you ask for a number that's too low, people will then recalibrate and be like, oh, I guess they weren't as experienced or talented as I thought they were. I found that a couple of times where I'm like, well, uh, sure, I'll do this for free. And they're like, oh, you're not a big deal. Well, Alan, it's been honestly so fascinating to pull back the curtain here and talk to you a little bit about what it was like to negotiate with both of us for this specific job. But we also want to talk about what people at home should do when they're listening and and trying to figure out how to negotiate for themselves. So we have this great payoff article that's all about what you should do when you get hired for a new job and how to negotiate a salary. So let's pull these tips out. And then will you tell us if we actually did these when we got this job? Ooh, yes, I am totally up for this. Okay. 
So tip number one is get your charm on. <laughs> Ooh, okay, so did we get our charm on? Were we personable and good-natured? So the negotiation we had was over email. Like, that's something that's a little more difficult to do in an email conversation. But Most diplomatic way ever of saying you were not charming. <laughs> no, I think that... Uh, Part of that that was established is that, you know, we had met in person. And this this is the part about if people like you, they're more likely to give you what you want. This is a facet of our society. We've known it for a long time, how to make friends and influence people, you know, go all the way back to Carnegie. Uh, so, it's also why attractive people have better negotiations. It's true, because people are more likely to like them. Um, so, and you can't, I mean, obviously you're only hearing our voices, but if you could see us, we are stunningly beautiful. <laughs> uh, everyone in this room is just like, it's hard to look around. That's one of the things that you probably, you, I'm imagining you're getting that through the voice, but just in case. So having met both of you in person as we were working through uh, bringing you on for the show, I was charmed and I liked you both. So I think you nailed it on that one. Okay, so the second tip, is justify a higher pay level by describing your value. Did we describe our value to you? This is so awkward. Uh, yes, you both did that. Uh, I think by being very concrete, I think the really important thing in this particular step is to be really concrete about exactly what it is that you're going to be able to do to make what you're being hired to do better. And I think in both your cases, you brought skill sets to the table that we knew that we really wanted. And I think that ultimately, that's why you're here. Okay, and now tip number three is have backup reasons on deck in case you get a no, which I think means justifying why you came to a number that you came to. Yeah, in case someone says no, and then why did you come up with that? I, I'm not sure that I did have this. Do you think I, I, Do you think we had this? Yeah, I think in both cases you did that. You know, it, The really important thing in any kind of negotiation is that there's a back and forth. You know, There wasn't ever a no, but there was a maybe this instead, right? The idea here is that you don't ever want the negotiation to be a short conversation. There should be back and forth. Both parties should be able to talk about what they want and be able to get it. Um, okay, Alan, thank you so much for talking with us. Uh, it was very nice to break the fourth wall and get to hear behind the scenes of this show, which is behind the scenes of personal finance. Super uncomfortable, but definitely illuminating. <laughs> yeah, Antonia is literally hugging herself right now. <laughs> This is the last time I'm interviewing someone who hired me about the process of whether they liked me or not. Not doing, not doing this again. Uh, stick around. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Joining us now is Alex Kavalakis, founder of The Muse, an online career site and author of the soon-to-be-published book, The New Rules of Work, written with her co-founder, Catherine Minshew. Alex, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So uh, we're so excited to have you here because you kind of do this like meta job where you your work is thinking about work and helping other people with work. Um, so how did The Muse come about? Yeah, so my co-founder Catherine and I met a while management consultants and had this experience where I was really thriving within the culture and it just wasn't a fit for her. And we realized that neither one of us could have known beforehand that that would happen or which one of us would, would thrive. It was no question of ambition or intelligence. It was just not the right fit. And that question of culture fit and how big of an impact it has on people's careers sort of sparked a beginning of conversations that led us to starting The Muse. That's so interesting. Yeah. So what have you found is the way to, de to determine culture fit for, for an individual? It's so personal is the first thing. Um, I think one of the biggest mistakes people make is they either follow what their parents think will be 
a good job or what their friends think are cool. Right now, one of the big challenges I'm seeing is people going into startups because it's cool, but it's not for everyone. It really mm-hmm. isn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's being introspective first and thinking about what your own set of values are and aligning that to your strengths and your interests and, and figuring out what's what's right. Some people might really value prestige and making money and feeling really stable in that way. That's okay. But you might also want flexibility and creativity. That's okay too. But if you try to switch the two, <laughs> you'll be in the wrong job. Yeah. And there's always a trade-off between one and the other in some ways. So you've been doing this for a while now. So what, what are the biggest things you've learned? It's been so interesting. I mean, I think the first is how much company culture can be an um i mean it grows just like anything else just like a person and can i pause you for just one second so like what is company culture if you're listening and have no idea what that is yeah so i think of it as the set of sort of values and core beliefs that drive how a company operates okay um i think of it when i look at the muse in our own company as um we'll have it done a good job with our company culture if the way people behave when Catherine and I are in the room is the same as when we're not. Oh, and wow. if we're living by our, our values and, and not both hiring for that and, and living that in our day-to-day. So I think um, words are great, but it's all about how you actually put it into action. And mm-hmm. most of the time that ends up happening with hard decisions where it's okay when you're faced with this, which which road do you go down? Um, and I used to be an elementary school teacher, and that's what they always said was the way to know if you're a good teacher is what do the kids do when you're out of the room, like when the substitutes. So it's there. exactly that. Yeah, we're all just <laughs> big children. A hundred percent. So how does the Muse work? For our users, we've got hundreds of articles we publish every month. It's original content on career, everything from how to negotiate a raise to how to be a manager for the first time, um, how to get out of a rut. And we also do an in-depth photo and video dive into companies. So we have over 700 clients, everything from actually CNN to uh, Facebook, small startups, uh, nonprofits all over the country. And so you can actually see what it's like to work there, hear from their employees about why they enjoy being at that company um, and see pictures of the office. And then there's the accompanying jobs for all of those companies. And then we launched a career coaching service uh, about a year ago, which is doing really well and helping people get unstuck. So our articles are there. They're free. Most people, that's all they need. But if you feel like you really need to go the next level, you can work with a vetted expert. And so it's really helping people figure out that next step for themselves. Cool. Uh, so how is this job market different for people of this generation than maybe generations past? A lot has changed, um, for sure. I think the biggest thing is there's no longer an assumption of certainty or stability, especially a generation. Great. Or- oh, that's so reassuring. <laughs> um, and you would think that's only a negative. But the one positive I would say is that's been paired with uh, this whole concept of transferable skills. Hmm. Before, if you were in finance all you could do is continue to be in finance Mm -hmm. Um, or if you were in healthcare and you could be a marketer for a hospital and then go and do marketing for a startup that has nothing to do with healthcare or Mm. move on to somewhere else. And so it's both freeing and scary. I think there's been a lot of um, almost paralysis of choice that's come out of that where, oh my gosh, I can do anything. Ah, what should I do? (laughs) Instead of I studied this, I guess I'm stuck with it. I'm just going to go down that path. Right. It seems like also my dad worked in the same job for 30 years and then retired like, great. I did it. And it seems like there's a lot more pressure that maybe he didn't feel when he was starting out to be like, I'm finding something that I'm passionate about and that I care about. It, is that something you see a lot in, in work? Yeah, we see that a lot. And we um, actually in the, the book that we have coming out, one of the things we talk a lot about is the three to five year time horizon rather than figure out what you're going to do with your life forever, hmm. saying figure out what you're going to do for the next three to five years. Mm-hmm. And maybe that'll still be what you want to do after that. But that's a good enough amount of time to focus and learn something new, whether it's an industry or a role and sort of take it to that next level and trying to figure out what you're going to do when you're 50, when you're 20 makes, they might even have jobs then that didn't exist. Oh yeah. 
I so, feels like they definitely will. And we'll even, all be like robot butlers. We'll by be then. robot butlers, exactly. <laughs> butlers for the robots. And ten years ago, you know, social media was not something people had on their radars. And so, trying to really plan for that future, I think, can create a lot of anxiety instead of just looking at what do I want right now. Um, that makes it a little bit easier, I think. So, what about these people who are stuck or maybe starting their career? How do they jumpstart it? Yeah. So I think when people are stuck, it, it sort of depends on the situation and why you're stuck. You know, if it's I'm trying to find a job or I'm unemployed and it's like really a financial question, I need income. Mm. Um, it becomes a little bit more tactical, which is, OK, do you have the right, you know, is your resume something that, that is um, crafted in such a way that's going to help you get interviews? Like, are you prepared for it? There's a, a sort of those sorts of steps rather than if you're in a situation where you're stuck because you're in a job that's fine, but you kind of go in every day and aren't doing your best. Um that requires a whole other, I think, almost moment of telling yourself, am I willing to keep doing this or do you have to push yourself out of your comfort zone to have something better? And, and both of those situations are really scary. I think what people forget is careers are incredibly personal, incredibly emotional, and especially with how the industries have changed. One of the first things people ask you, especially on the coasts, is what do you do? Hmm. If you're not proud of what you do, if you don't enjoy it, that's actually an identity question. If you're unemployed, there's a shame that comes with that. Like it's a very emotional um, thing. And a lot of the other solutions um, that existed before we started the Muse are really transactional and don't deal with that sort of human component. So mm -hmm. our goal is to have that sort of relationship with our user and help them through that. So we've been talking a lot about on this episode about negotiating and especially like salary and money. Um, so how do you, what's your advice for that? If, if we're going into these money conversations that are kind of awkward, what do you think is the best way to talk about it with an employer? Yeah. So I think the first thing about negotiation is that it's a muscle like anything else. And most people don't have to flex it often. Mm. And it's like saying, I'm going to go and negotiate a $10,000 raise is like saying, I'm going to go run a marathon when I've never jogged. And it's hard. And then, of course, you feel uncomfortable. Your body's reacting very strongly. This is a bad <laughs> idea. And so instead of being able to say, OK, are you in your day to day having negotiation opportunities? Some of the low stakes ways actually to do it that I, I really like as a tip for people who are very, very uncomfortable is you're out shopping, you're buying a sweater, just ask the person if you can have 10% off. Like, there's literally no stakes. Wait, that feels crazy. Like, you could just do that? Have you done that? Sometimes they say yes. And when they say no, you just pay the price you were going to pay anyway. But there's this element of realizing that asking and hearing no is okay. Mm. And then there's also the side of I it. I feel like they would be like, no, are you insane? This is a store. But they don't? <laughs> Some of them do. But then... What happens? You're still fine. Yeah. And wow. so I think there's two elements. One that just is, blew my that blew my I mind. Know. One is asking and realizing that hearing no is not the end of the world and you won't die and implode and, and fall apart. <laughs> yeah. And the other is that sometimes when you ask someone says yes. And like the, those two lessons are actually really helpful emotionally for people who are just unwilling to ask. Um, the other more tactical when you're really thinking about negotiating, it's all about preparation. Hmm. Right. You don't want to blindside um, your manager when you're talking about money, you also want to know your worth. Because mm -hmm. one of the things I hear the most often actually is the opportunity when you get a job is one of the biggest opportunities to negotiate. And a lot of people will say, okay, in my mind, I thought I wanted to make this, like I currently make, let's say 55,000. So as long as I'm making more than that, great. And I get an offer and they're like, great, we'd like to offer you a job, it's 60,000. You're like, done, wonderful, I'm joining. Yeah. And then you realize that the market for that role was actually 70. And so one of my biggest things, it's a really easy thing to do, is if you get an offer and they give you the money on the phone, they tell you, it's saying, great, thank you so much. I'd love to think about it. And, you know, can you send it to me in writing? Don't accept it right away. You might still want to accept that number, but it gives you a chance to take a step back and say, 
is this what I wanted? Is there anything I'm missing? How many vacation days? Like, what are the other mm. logistical things that fall into it? That's also such a power move, too, like in a good way, where you're like, I'd like to think about it. And they're like, oh, yeah. they're going to, they think. <laughs> that person thinks. And all of these hiring managers and recruiters, they do this for a living. Yeah. A large percentage of the people they make offers to negotiate. So if you don't, you may actually be the minority. Right. And so they're not, they're expecting you to maybe negotiate. Right. And to come back. And so um, remembering that, I think, also makes it less scary versus being like, hi, sorry, I want something. Uh, I feel a little bit awkward. It's different than saying, great. Thank you so much for that offer. It feels like a really good starting point. Um, I noticed that there's nothing in here around um, bonuses. And given that this is a revenue driving role, like, let's talk about what that looks like. And you can have it's just like a conversation like anything else. Hmm. But it's a muscle to have uncomfortable conversations. Um, so I would recommend people practice. It's really about like learning to live with shame. Yeah, like not being ashamed <laughs> of asking for things, which is a, a big life skill. Oh, my yeah. gosh. And it comes to the question of worth, right? Yeah. My, do I deserve this is something I think a lot of people struggle with. And saying this is already so much I should feel lucky to accept it is actually one of the biggest reasons people don't negotiate. Oh, you are speaking my language right there. Yeah. That's an internal. I feel like you just read my mind. So that's what I think every time someone offers me money. You're like, you're paying me to, to make people laugh? <laughs> yeah. Done. No, I should just, you should take the money. You're paying me in chocolate? Perfect. <laughs> exactly. I've had that gig. You've been at the gig before. Uh, well, I, this, what we're talking about exactly right now, this is in your book, right? This is a big it part is. of your book. Yeah. So we, um, the whole, the earlier question about how to figure out what to do um, is what the whole first section of the book is about. So it talks about, it actually has exercises for you to fill out, to think about ranking what you what you value and, and how to do the research to figure out what roles might actually align with that. And then the whole second part of the book is, okay, you now you know what you want to do. Wonderful. How do you find the role, resume, cover letter, interview? How do you turn down an offer? How do you accept an offer? How do you negotiate? And then the third section is all on how to nail it once you're in the job, which is mm. a fun part. Um, well, thank you so much for being here. This has been a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. It's time now for our final segment, The Bottom Line, where we take a look at a story from the world of business news, and then we break down why you should care about it and how it's going to affect your bank balance and your life as a whole. And I know one thing I hear about at the beginning of every month is this thing called the jobs report. But what is the jobs report? What does it really mean? And to help us out, we've brought on payoff editor Susie Popek. She's going to explain more about the jobs report, break down the most recent one, and also explain why everyone should be paying attention to these numbers that are released by the Labor Department. So, Susie, what is the jobs report? It's a great question. I'm sure you're waiting with bated breath every month. <laughs> uh, so for the last century or so, um, the government has, on a monthly basis, released employment numbers. And you get a little snapshot of how the economy is doing in that sense. Um, this month was some pretty good news. Well, what was, what was the yeah, good news? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That's great. Uh, <laughs> I could use good news. Yes, indeed. Um, so for January, the U.S. economy added 227,000 jobs. That's a wow. lot of jobs. That's a lot that of jobs. a lot of jobs. It was a little more than people had expected. And hourly earnings rose by three cents, which sounds like very little. But for the whole year, that's 2.5 percent um, wage growth, which is also good. So generally good news. Wages are going up. More jobs. More that jobs. sounds like you can't argue with that. Right. Um, winning. Just take winning. that out. Uh, <laughs> the little piece of bad news is that the unemployment rate uh, ticked up a tiny bit. It went up from 4.7% to 4.8%. Okay. So explain to me how you could have 
more jobs, but also more unemployment, because that doesn't seem to make any sense. A lot of babies not working. Is it's, that the answer? It's, it's a confusing. <laughs> yeah, indeed. I will say these numbers are, are very confusing and not always correct. Um, sometimes they are adjusted later on. But in this case, to answer your question, the unemployment rate doesn't actually reflect all the people who are out of work. It only reflects people who are actively looking for jobs. Huh. So it's I always think of unemployed people as people who don't have jobs. Right. And you're telling me that is not correct. That's not what this, you know, headline unemployment number reflects. What it doesn't reflect is the people who have been searching for jobs and just searching and then give up. So, Susie, you've been telling us about the number of new jobs that were created in January. Where are those jobs? What industries have been doing well are projected to do well in the future? Great question. If you want to work in one of these industries, this is a good time to read up on becoming a physical therapist or aid to a physical therapist or assistant to a physical therapist. That looks to grow by about 40%. um, Hiring looks to grow by about 40% between 2014 and 2024. So you've still got some time. Wow. Bad news is people are going to have a lot of injuries. That's why it's growing? Mm, Well, there's certainly a growing aging population. Mm. And then occupational therapy assistants also have a similar growth rate in front of them. And these are people who work um, to provide people who are sick or injured uh, with skills for daily living. So helping people is a growth industry. Indeed. And it makes sense, right? You can't, uh, a robot can't take that job. Not yet. Um, And then the number (laughs) one job, uh, it's a little esoteric, but with a projected growth rate of 108%. Um, this is the number one. This is the number one um, to the year 2024 is wind turbine technician. What? <gasps> and that's what you do in your free time already, Antonia. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Hold up. Sorry. Is So the the wind energy, the like thing that looks like... Fancy <laughs> windmill. Fancy windmill fancy that windmill creates doctor. energy is the number... The number one job of the future is fancy windmill doctor. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we talked about the jobs report. It came out this month, but it also comes out every single month. What should we be looking for next time? Uh, What are the big things to kind of keep an eye on? I think the most important thing is to not pay too much attention to the jobs report, to be honest. I think it's a great bellwether. um... Very easy. Very easy to do. (laughs) I am nailing it already. (laughs) It's good to pay attention to, and it's also good to not take too seriously. Yeah. So it seems like the bottom line on this one is if you're freaking out about the jobs report, no need to freak out. And don't assume that you have to become a windmill technician. But it does seem like occupational therapist or physical therapist are good bets. The medical field in general is growing very, very quickly. Home health aides are also on this list. Nurse practitioners, um, physical therapists. You can't go wrong. So if you're in college and trying to figure out what to study so you have a stable career, it seems like pre-med is still a good bet. Very much so. Thank you so much for coming to talk to us, Susie. Yeah, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Okay, so that's it for this episode. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our theme music is from Breakmaster Cylinder, and our producer is Alan Haberchak. Thank you, Alan. And thanks so much to everyone for listening. If you want to help us out, you can do that by rating and reviewing the show on iTunes. You can also tell a friend about what you learned and tell them there's more where that came from. You can also find out more about us on Twitter at The Payoff by Mike or online at Mike.com slash The Payoff. See you next time. <laughs>